Hello and welcome to Immigrantly, the thought-provoking podcast that delves deep into the extraordinary world of immigrant identity in the US and beyond. I am Sadia Khan. Today we tackle a topic that often stirs discomfort but is so crucial to explore. Class. Yep, I'm talking about class. Now, class has been a measure of success, intellect, and self-worth for generations. Those in the upper echelons of society are held as the benchmark for aspiration. Growing up in Pakistan, I considered myself part of the upper middle class. Not super rich, but comfortably well off. Yet my family projected an image of more wealth than we possessed. Because of which, I never felt conscious of those who were wealthier. However, my journey took an interesting turn when I arrived in the US. I really had to recalibrate my expectations, learning to do basic chores, cook, run errands, tasks that I had never encountered before. I know it sounds classist, But that's my reality. It was a humbling experience shaping my perspective in profound ways. Despite the challenges, my husband and I chose to stay in the US, which, by the way, puzzled my parents. To them, it seemed like a downward shift in class, if that notion makes any sense to you. Now, two years later, as we lead a more comfortable life in the U.S., the question of our class identity arises. Are we upper middle class or perhaps upper class? But unraveling the complexity of class in the U.S. goes far beyond financial status. In America, the way I see it, class intertwines with race immigration status, ethnicity, national origin, and countless other factors. It's this intricate web of identity that demands exploration and understanding. So today, I am joined by a guest who has grappled with this intersectionality for years and has embarked on a journey to interrogate the prevailing notions of class through his groundbreaking new podcast, Classy. This podcast explores all the uncomfortable moments around class, the things we don't say out loud, and maybe the things we wish we could. His podcast covers all this and more through individual stories where he talks to people in various industries as well as draws on his own life experiences. Let's welcome Jonathan Menhiwar to the show. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I am excited to be doing this. You're based in New York, right? I live in New Jersey. I'm in my closet in New Jersey. Ah, yeah. uh, 
That's wonderful. I, I occasionally go to the New York office. but Where is the New York office? In downtown Brooklyn. Oh, my gosh. That's far. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's why I'm here most of the time. <laughs> yeah. So I go yeah. to this studio in Midtown Manhattan. It's uh, 44th Street and 9th Ave. Okay. And I live in the Burbs. I live in Westchester County. So it's not that far. It's like mm-hmm. 40, 45 minutes. Not too bad. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about your podcast. I listened to the first episode and I was blown away. I was listening to it while I was working out. So this is like really weird space. Mm-hmm. But it was so refreshing to see somebody who was vulnerable, embarrassed, empowered, honest at the same time. And that's what I really, really liked about your conversations. And it talks about class, which is such a difficult topic to explore. But it's so important that you and I are having this conversation So talk to me about the concept. How did the concept of the podcast come about? It came about, I mean, really, because this is like a thing that I have dealt with my entire life. My background, in case people haven't heard the show, is uh, I grew up working class. Uh, My parents were immigrants from Latin American countries. My father's from El Salvador. My mother, she is half Mexican and half American. She had an American father, but she was born in Mexico and then... She was brought to the U.S. when she was two. And they split up when I was really young. And my life trajectory has been a pattern of first my family and then myself striving for more, for better. And so, you know, in my lifetime, my mother went from she cleaned houses when I was first born. And then she got a factory job at a paint and wallpaper factory and my dad also worked in a variety of factories. He worked at a shower door factory and eventually he just retired from Walmart. He was working at a Walmart distribution center. And then I went to college. I went to a state school. <laughs> I went to Cal State Fullerton in California, uh, where I'm from. And then I eventually like made my way into public radio and worked at some pretty prestigious places. Uh, I worked at Fresh Air and I worked at This American Life. Now I work at Pineapple Street Studios, and often in those places, I have felt out of place. I didn't have the life experiences that people had. I didn't have the same language as the people around me. I didn't know the same food necessarily or feel comfortable around the same kind of food. Everything, you know, it wasn't, it's not just money, it's, but it's all this other cultural stuff that the money gets you access to. And so I wanted to get that feeling out. Because I, th- I think these feelings make us do all sorts of weird and strange and even funny things. And if I could talk to people about the things that happened in their lives, maybe I might feel better. Maybe everybody might feel a little bit better about it. And I think the thing that you heard in that episode, the vulnerability and even the like self-criticism is, you know, it was very important when we started talking about this as a team for the show to be a space to examine the way that we can kind of tell ourselves stories and twist ourselves up and even like paint ourselves as victims in this and not acknowledge what we actually do and have sometimes. So I think it just was a place that it required me to be that way so that other people could be that way on the show. I have so many questions now. (laughs) (laughs) First, I want to go back to what you just said. You said sometimes that 
discomfort. Class discomfort makes you do interesting things, weird things. Give yes. me an example of something <laughs> that you did, something interesting because of that. I mean, there is the example in episode two, which is a, an interview with my old boss, Terry Gross, that I was desperate to fit in when I was at Fresh Air. And I was doing all sorts of things to to try and fit in. I, you know, I was like, oh, I got to start reading The New Yorker. People here read The New Yorker. You know, I got to find out, like, wait, what are those think tanks? You know, like all the, <laughs> the stuff I probably should have been doing, you know, um, to like bone up and, and know how to do the job properly. But then there was all this other cultural stuff. And then one thing that I found that happened was I started laughing like her. And Terry has this very particular kind of laugh where she snorts when she thinks something is really funny. And I started doing it. And I think there's some question. It's arguable. Like, is this actually a class thing? Is this did it actually happen because of the reason that I'm thinking, you know, but it happened right. <laughs> and it was all part of this story of this place where I was having this feeling. I, I know in my own life for a long time, really like throughout my 20s, I had two ways of doing this, two ways of wearing this chip on my shoulder. One is just to feel like, you know, I started from behind and I'm never going to achieve things that people who started in a different class ahead of me will. And so, like, just being completely resigned to be, like, bitter and angry about that. And then the other way, is, which is in some ways is just as toxic, is to feel, like, superior to other people who have had it better off than me. To be, like, I've had to struggle, you know, and I've had to, like, claw and fight my way to be here. So I'm better than you. Which is it, is, it is very hard for me to admit this, you know, like I have, this, this is a thing I have felt and thought about people who I love dearly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I think it is a feeling that was useful to me at certain points in my life. How was it useful? I think it helps you combat those gross feelings sometimes and make you feel, in those moments when you are feeling sort of lesser than, you know, it can kind of be a way to... Moral superiority? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just kind of gives you a, like some some legs to stand on a little bit. But I don't think it's that's like an existence that I now in my 40s, that's not a, a thing, a feeling I want to have anymore, you know. So what do you subscribe to now? I think now it, that is just my past, you know, that's that's mm. that is my life experience. And maybe it's different than yours. And maybe it took me a little longer to get to this place where I am now. But I try not to have any sort of moral judgment either way. Uh, we just had different life experiences, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so interesting you say that, Jonathan, because what I've realized about myself, the minute I started owning most embarrassing parts of my identity, and when I say embarrassing, as perceived by the broader American society, mm -hmm. I became empowered. I became unapologetic yep. about who I am. Yeah. And that feeling itself is so liberating. Yes. It is so calming, right? Because then you're like, I don't give a fuck what you think. Right. This is who I am. If you like it, great. But I am not here to make you comfortable around exactly. me. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
I, I'm not nice all the time now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's just sort of like, this is me and take it as it is and like feel whatever the fuck you want to feel about it. Exactly. I, exactly. Look, I don't read New Yorker. I don't have pop culture references. I grew up in a different country. I speak multiple languages. And I have more nuanced approach to life and human experiences than you have. So there you have it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Jonathan, anger is also a strong emotion. There's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with being angry at times. Why do that you think true. being angry was bad or would have been bad? I think the anger was fine to feel. I think it's the ways in which I sort of basked in that anger and mm. like gave into it. There were times where I felt like, well, I'm just never going to achieve the things I want to achieve in life because of where I come from, you know? You know, I want to go back to your episode with Terry Crews. I mm -hmm. have consumed most of your episodes. So <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about that. As I was listening to that conversation, I felt Terry Crews was being a bit defensive. And maybe that's my understanding of that conversation. And I wonder, is it ever easy to have conversations with people about class without them getting defensive about it. Yeah. I mean, I, one I want to say is uh, I just want to acknowledge that Terry herself was acknowledging that she was being a little defensive, you know. I think it's hard. I think it's hard because so much of what we're talking about when we're having these kinds of conversations is we're acknowledging that there's a difference between us. And that is hard, and it's hard not to feel bad about that. And it's hard not to take it personal. Like in that instance, Terry had done nothing wrong to me. It's not like she had created this super elite workplace where I wasn't allowed in or that people were, were not welcoming. And I think for the most part, nobody even knew any of this stuff about me. I was trying pretty hard to blend in. But I, I think it feels very personal. And so people are going to get defensive. That seems like a totally natural reaction. Hmm. I think I certainly get defensive about my own position. That was one of the things, one of the, the purposes of the show, in a way, is to examine the stories that we are telling ourselves about ourselves and the people around us and the way that we compare them to ourselves to each other and all of that. So when you look back at your time, in turning for Terry, do you see yourself fitting in in that industry now versus then? How has your approach changed? I just want to say I wasn't an intern. I was I was hired as an associate producer. There. Oh, okay. But, but it was, yeah, it was my first like real job in radio. I think my approach is, is a little different. I mean, some of this comes with like, you know, more than 20 years experience in the industry. And so now I just like... I feel pretty confident walking into a room and doing the job. But I think something that is different now, certainly I have made this giant statement with this show to say, like, this is who I am and this is where I come from. And I'm not going to try and hide that anymore. I'm not going to pretend like I you know, went to the elite schools that some of you went to or have had the kind of life experiences, you know, and like 
backpacked through Europe or whatever, you know, like right. this is this is who I am. Jonathan, have you learned anything about yourself through this process, something that you weren't even aware of consciously, subconsciously? Yeah. The story I have been telling myself about how downtrodden I am in a way or I was growing up. I think I've gained a little perspective on it and and understood like we were a real paycheck to paycheck family, but we were never going hungry, you know, mm. and even though I didn't know anyone who went to college, like I had access to that stuff. I think it has forced me to examine and, and look at the advantages I have had and really like kind of the remarkable path from one generation to, to where I am now. You know, I mean, both of my parents grew up in pretty extreme poverty. This is a great segue into my next question about how class is perceived by immigrants versus how it's perceived by second, third generation kids of immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. When I see myself, I'm an immigrant. I grew up in Pakistan. I have an accent. Now, I do talk about my class or my relationship with class in my intro a bit. I grew up upper middle class in Pakistan, but we projected more wealth than we ever had. And because of that, I was not conscious around people who were wealthier than me because we had a very comfortable lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. And then we come to the U.S. and everything changes. We have to reorient ourselves to notions of class, identity. I become an immigrant overnight. I have an accent. I am not part of the dominant population. And yet, I am not as conscious about those things. We had to work really hard, my husband and I, when we came here. I feel we are living a comfortable lifestyle in the U.S. now. Mm -hmm. But I don't equate wealth or class to intellect. I don't equate it to smartness. I don't equate it to my self-worth. But I'm pretty sure my kids in some ways still do. And I wonder if you've seen those differences between you and your dad. And I'm also curious to know, what do you think you'll pass on to your daughter? Will she get the cashmere socks? <laughs> Yeah, I think cashmere socks might just be my own thing. Uh, nobody else in this house wears cashmere socks. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I interviewed my dad pretty extensively for this show. Um, most of the tape didn't make it into the show. But I was just explaining the concept of the show. And I asked him, what class or do, do you consider yourself? And he kind of didn't even know how to answer the question. He was like, wait, what? And so I laid it out, you know, sort of like, oh, there's there's poor, working class, middle class, upper class. And he's like, oh, I, I consider myself working class. But it, it was clear that's not a thing that he thinks about mm. much. We didn't really break it down, but I imagine part of it is that it just doesn't matter <laughs> as much for him. I think he exists in a, in a mostly working class world. His wife is a teacher and several of his kids from his second marriage are also teachers, which in this country is almost a kind of, even though it requires so much education and yeah. dedication, it is treated in some way as a working class job. But I think for him, what he sees is... I could barely afford to eat as a child. And now I own a house and can do things with my family. He's got a pool in his backyard, you know. Those are the things that feel like a miraculous 
immigrant story, you know? And, and so, like, why be bothered by this stuff? I mean, he told me, like, you know, he was basically like, what's wrong with you? Why do you care? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you so. know, that's a typical immigrant parent, I guess, idea of mm -hmm. America. Do you believe in the American dream? Um, no. I want to explore this a little more with you. Yeah. Tell me, why don't you believe in it? I don't believe in it. I think it is very true that some people come here and really work very hard and achieve a lot. I mean, certainly my father is an example of that. But I think there are plenty of people who come here and are, are trying for those things and it just doesn't work out. Or they hit a certain wall or a ceiling of, of just like, this is as far as we're going to get. And, you know, there's just so many advantages that come from being a certain class and understanding how the system works. I, and then I, this is probably most important is like having the community and also wealth to lean on when things don't work out. Unless you you have those things, it's it's really, really hard. So... Yes. I mean, my dad believes in the American dream because it really has worked out for him. But but I, I think it doesn't always work out like that. So, yeah, I feel all immigrants are fed a lie. We are all made to believe in the American dream. But when we come here and I consider myself a privileged immigrant, again, there is a dichotomy. There is a hierarchy of who comes into this country. And as you said, what they can lean into. But at the end of the day, there is no such thing as meritocracy in America or, you know, realization of American dream being equitable for everyone. It doesn't happen. Right. There are so many roadblocks, even if you come with wealth and education, immigration status alone can hold you back for years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't think I've ever talked about this on my podcast, but... When my husband and I came, we came for college, stayed back. And I remember we were in Denver. He had a job that he liked. It wasn't like great, but he was fine with it. And then he applied for a job at Google and he got in and he had to decline it because he had already applied for his green card through this other employer and mm. he couldn't switch. Wow. So it's like those little anecdotes those little stories that makes you think that people who are really born here have so many advantages. It's almost unfair to compare people who come from outside with people who live here. Yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And the immigration system is totally broken. It's pretty yeah. fucked up. Yeah. So, Jonathan, I want to pivot and talk a little bit about class. Now, on your podcast, you do talk about middle class mentality. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. And how did you explore it? Well, in our first episode, I interviewed this woman named Rachel Sherman, who is a sociologist. And I think the thing that we kind of leaned into and, and really wanted to say is that in some ways, the middle class is an invention. If you look at, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me now, but what qualifies you as middle class is so broad that it's, it's almost meaningless. But more importantly, I think the thing that we wanted to explore and, and, and share with the audience was that this idea that like, I call the middle class like the Goldilocks 
class that everybody wants to be in because it is a safe place where where there are no judgments you know the the thing you were talking about earlier about like being defensive and you know feeling guilty about that stuff like being middle class is a place where you can you can feel okay about yourself because we really do in this country apply moral judgments on people of other classes you know there if you are poor it's because of something that you've done you know you're not working hard enough you maybe you've got some kind of addiction or something that is you know whatever it is poor people are looked down on in lots of ways in this country by the culture and same if you are upper class you know there is a like why do you have more why is your lifestyle so ostentatious you know i really liked in, in that episode the sociologist she had had done a lot of interviews with a lot of rich new yorkers and the ways in which that they are telling themselves and the people around them like well no 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 we're we're not like we're not really rich you know we're middle class cuz like we don't own a plane like that is actually a thing <laughs> that people said to her you know i find that so condescending in a way and when we talk about middle class i assume we are talking about imaginative middle class for upper class folks as well right so there is like mm-hmm. economically viable middle class right in economic terms mm-hmm. but then what you're explaining is that upper class folks want to identify as middle class not based on their worth but perception of how people view them mm-hmm. right yeah 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 well i i think there is all sorts of ideology connected to that class status you know there is a a sense of a lot of what we talk about in that episode is the ways in which the sort of things that rich people will do to make themselves feel a little better about it you know they'll talk about the charity work that they do or things like that you know just to like well i i'm i'm a nice person and all of those things and and so where we ultimately get to in that episode is you know that that sociologist was really pushing me to question my beliefs about rich people and also her ultimate argument is that when we are like placing these individual judgments on individual rich people we're actually ignoring the larger system at play we are not talking about tax policy that right. might make things a little fat fair or we're not talking about housing you know that would allow for mixed income housing in certain neighborhoods it is a way she argues that we are actually pointing to individual rich people and making these moral judgments against them we are actually allowing them to get away with it hmm. in a way it's it's just it's like it's it's uh spent energy on on something that doesn't really matter and at the same time a lot of people aspire to be in that class bracket sure right yeah. so there is this dichotomy that exists between where we are where we want to be but jonathan this is me speaking as an immigrant <laughs> uh-huh. why is there so much judgment or why are people so inclined in the us to be perceived as good people everybody wants to be a good person and that definition is so warped and it's so messed up 
I'm always confused as to why everything boils down to that. And as you said, they don't really do much to be a good person in terms of voting for people who bring about policies that are more equitable or treating everybody with respect or looking at or reconciling with racial inequities that exist within the U.S. or socioeconomic inequities that exist. But mm-hmm. everybody wants to be good. Right. Why? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure some of it is like goes back to our puritanical roots in this country in terms of class and like the, the stuff that that we looked into it for the show. I think it's because the system's unfair. And so one way to get around whatever yucky feelings you might have about the ways that you are benefiting from that unfair system is to be like, well, no, 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 I'm a good person, you know, to to be defensive, like you were saying in the beginning. And rich people are just, who engage in this kind of behavior are just like an extreme version of it. In the spirit of the show, in which I am also looking at my own complicity in all of this, I certainly do it too. Mm. I certainly downplay the things that I have. I'm still like pretending in a, in a lot of ways like I'm a working class kid when like I own a house in, in a pretty fancy New Jersey suburb, you know? Why do you pretend still? I'm pretending less, I will say that. But, <laughs> um, I think because as much as I, I know that these things are like made up stories and myths there's like kind of cachet in like the version of my story that is like, no, I, I like pulled myself up from my bootstraps or whatever. There is a, a way that like telling myself that story makes me feel better. Like when I feel uncomfortable in certain places, you know, like uh, if I am uh, in certain rooms in my work life or in, in just like my social life. Uh, and I'm feeling uncomfortable, a kind of defense that I have had at various points is to be like, yeah, I don't even belong here. You know, like I'm 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 just like a, a working class schlub, you know, even though like the, the last time I did physical labor was, I don't know, 25 years ago, <laughs> you know, so. Why is sense of belonging so important? I think it's just human. I want to feel liked. I want to like be among people and feel like they think I'm funny and nice to be around and, you know, <laughs> all of those things and like, and charming. And so, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's just like a, like, p- please, please like me and, and, and tell me I belong, you know? Huh. Yeah. to talk a little bit about your conversation with fashion designer Brenda Ikihua. It was a fascinating conversation. Brenda brings her Latino heritage into mainstream high fashion. The coats that she's selling are pretty high-end. I visited her website, (laughs) which is wonderful, right? Yeah. And then they also have the scholarships for BIPOC communities, which is giving back to the community. But having said that, Brenda is actually part of a class that is exclusionary of the class that she came from. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of stories that you discuss on your podcast, right? And I wonder how do people who 
move from one class to another, their socioeconomic standing changes, how do they reconcile with their past and present and how do they coexist without being hypocritical or being unfair to one class? I, I actually think that, again, this is almost related to the, the sort of are rich people bad question in that Brenda's not going to fix everything. Yeah, and she shouldn't. I mean, she's not supposed to, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I think her approach is that that people of all classes deserve nice things, you know? And so she has decided to make clothing, some of which is, is you know, th those coats cost like $750. They're very luxurious, very nice, and made from material that are usually sold on street corners. You know, all of the blankets that she makes coats out of, like those things I, I have in my house because we bought them in Tijuana, you know, um, or at the swap meet um, for $20, $30, you know. But she she is putting like craft and really fine zippers and they're all handmade and everything into them. And I think that she deserves to be able to make those things and sell those things. And I, I think there is a real question that I asked her about just like, so what does that mean that like the community that you came from mm. probably can't afford these things, you know? And so I, I, I think it's, it's kind of an extreme version of the thing that happens for any of us who jump classes, you know, like I have done that in my own life, but I haven't been able to bring all of my family along with me, you know? That sort of requires a level of wealth that uh, I'm probably never going to achieve in my life. So I think Brenda should should be like questioning what that means, you know, that she has made uh, an object that is exclusionary to the community that she comes from. But I don't think that there necessarily needs to be a moral judgment as her being a bad person for that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that I think like making this show has led to some uncomfortable conversations with members of my family that are, have been private, but where we have acknowledged like, wow, there's like a difference between us, you know, mm. that's sort of what I, I, I wanted the show to do is just to be able to say like, yeah, this is a little weird, right? <laughs> We're a little different now. Absolutely. Yeah. And Jonathan, the endearing quality of your show is that it has all these different human stories, right? Human experiences that you're sharing, including your own, where some of it is front facing, some of it is private. And I'm curious to know how much of private has become front facing now or have you shared with people? And is there part of this process or your thought process that you've still kept private and you intend to keep private? Yeah, I think like anybody who makes personal work, you know, there's a lot of thought and care that went into it in, in terms of thinking about how much do I actually want to reveal. And I think I I reveal a lot. I I reveal more in the show than I ever have and anything else that I've made. But I was very intentional to keep certain things private. So there are things about my past that 
I don't think people need to know, you know, <laughs> that that I can make the point that I need to make in the show without getting into certain specifics of things. And and also like my family now, they occasionally get mentioned, but that is private. And I think because like I made the choice to tell this personal story, but the people around me didn't necessarily. Exactly. And, you know, I I was pretty conscious about wanting to protect them. So, so far, at least the episodes that I've listened to, as I said, most of them are personal stories, conversations. But class is such an expansive topic, right? And it's intertwined with race, with capitalism, mm -hmm. racial hierarchy in America, so many things. Are you going to explore any of that on this podcast? Or do you think this space is not for those conversations? I mean, I wish we could, you know, it's, it was conceived of as a limited series. So the, actually, as I'm talking to you, the eighth and final episode has come out uh -huh. this morning. Um, but it is also a topic where if we uh, had the money and, uh, and the space to make more episodes, I think there could definitely be more seasons because it does feel like we have barely touched on the kinds of things that we could get to. Um, somebody on Twitter recently just uh, mentioned, like, I wish they would talk about bodies and weight and the way that that is intertwined with class. And I was like, yes, that would be incredible. You know, um, I, I think there are so many things that we didn't touch. And I, we knew, we knew there was, you know, in one season of a show, there was no way we were going to be able to, to touch all of it. But, you know, we did, we did explore race. Um, we explored food. We talk about music and sort of like the role of fantasy. <laughs> so there is one episode that is about army recruiting and sort of who in this country. That yet. Yeah, who in this country that seems like a good opportunity for and who uh, who has the option to be like, nah, I think I'm going to do something else. You know? <laughs> it's certainly tied up in class. So, yes, I, I, I wish uh, we could keep going and, and uh, really explore because it is endless and, and, it, and it touches everything. It is endless because as I was listening to it, I sat down with thoughts around class and I started to ruminate and there were so many things that I started thinking about because I've mm -hmm. done almost 230 something episodes on Immigrantly and never really dealt with class at that very basic, you know, level, which is <laughs> insane. Jonathan, what do you want listeners to take away from it? One thing is, is I want people to know they're not alone, you know? And I've gotten a ton of messages from people who are thankful for, for the fact that I have shared this, you know, um, because I think the thing is, so much of the show really is about the way that class makes us feel. Feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm not talking about, you know, policy much on this show. It, it is about the way we feel, and so much of that is it feels pretty lonely most of the time. You know, I, I know that I have felt really alone and felt like I was the only one, even though I know I'm not, even though I've, like, read books and talked to people that have, have made it clear I'm not the only one who experiences these things. I wanted people to feel like they are not alone. So 
that as one. No matter where you are on, on the class ladder, you know, I think we are all experiencing some version of comparing ourselves up and down that, that class <laughs> ladder, you know, and feeling strange feelings about it. Look, we, we live in a capitalist society. How can we not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing I wanted was just a space for, for people to be honest about it. And I hope, I hope it spurs conversations in people's own lives, you know, that they talk with their partners and with their family. Because I think the other thing that I have learned and have tried to convey in the show is that, yes, like things are unequal and these disparities exist, but so much of this is also just like kind of stuff that is built up and calcified in our heads and having conversations about it. I just wanted the show to be like a, a release valve, mm. you know, mm. where like like anything that is bothering you, you know, if you if you talk about it, you, you can you can see it in, in a new light and, and kind of relieve yourself of, of some of those feelings. In the end, Jonathan, if you were to describe America in a word or a phrase, how would you do that? thought about this for a long time, and maybe this is obvious, but the United States is uneven. I like that. Let's just, like, acknowledge some people have, some people do not. And uh, let's stop pretending, like, that that's not true. Yes, let's stop pretending. Oh my gosh, that's such an important point. Thank you, Jonathan. This was so good. Where can people find Classy? You can find Classy anywhere that podcasts are available. I think the best way to find it, search for Classy Menjivar. And my last name is spelled M-E-N-J-I-V-A-R. This was so good, Jonathan. Thank you for being on Immigrantly. I'm so glad we were able to do this. Can't wait to listen to the last episode. I hope you can come back for season two and talk more about things or intersectionality of class with so many different dimensions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Class is something I chose not to talk about. It's an uncomfortable space for me. I do think I am privileged in many ways, whether as an immigrant or when I was growing up in Pakistan. And maybe that makes me uncomfortable around class. I don't necessarily want to be nice all the time. But as an immigrant, I feel I have advantages that a lot of other immigrants don't. And that makes me uncomfortable with my immigrant identity. Tell me, how did you like this conversation? Do you have any discomfort around class? Would you like to share it with us? If so, send us a voice memo at sadia at immigrantlypod.com. This episode was produced by me, written by Bobak Afshari and me. Our editorial review was done by Shay Yu. Our editor for this episode is Paroma Chakravarti. Theme music is done by Simon Hutchinson. Don't forget to follow us on our socials. We are also on TikTok at Immigrantly Podcast. Until next time, take care.